You're listening to audio from the Regenerate Podcast, a ministry of River City Church in Lewiston, Idaho. For more information about Regenerate, visit rivercitychurch.us. No, you don't just want friends. You want a boyfriend or girlfriend. Okay. Um, anyway, um, tonight we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark chapter 15. If y'all have a Bible, this is going to be a little bit interactive tonight. So if you have a Bible, if you don't have one, I actually, I actually brought a stack of them. So I have some here. I hope they can hear like my, my old man grunts on the podcast. Um, so anyway, these are, yeah. So we're going to be in the gospel of Mark chapter uh, 15, ver- starting in verse 15. We're going to, and then we're going to continue through the majority of the gospel of Mark chapter 15. And um, one of the things that we're going to be working, or we're going to be looking at is like one of the most important moments, not just, not just an important moment, but this is the important moment in, um, in the gospel of Mark. And in fact, this is the, what we're going to learn about tonight. We've been building up to this ever since we started the gospel of Mark last fall, and we've been working through it a chapter or so at a time. We've been looking at different stories throughout the gospel of Mark. This is, this is what everything has been building up to. This is the climax of the story. Um, how many of you guys have read or watched a fairy tale? If you've watched a Disney movie, you probably have. <laughs> um, everyone knows that in a great story, in a great fairy tale, there's always a moment where everything is dark, right? Where the night is darkest just before the dawn. And this is that moment. The difference between this and a Disney fairy tale is that this is history. It is documented by multiple sources. The Gospel of Mark was written in about AD 55, about only about 20 years or so after the events that we're about to read about. Not only that, but this is, this is, a, uh, this is something that has been an anchor for millions of people for the last 2,000 years. The moment that we're about to read about is arguably the most important moment in all of human history. So in the Gospel of Mark chapter 15, there's a lot of suffering. And a lot of people, when they come to Christianity, when they come to faith, they ask this question very simply. Why is there suffering in the world? So you can move to the slide there. Tonight we're going to be looking at the good news of the crucifixion. Why is there suffering in the world? Right? People always often have this question because we want to know why there's suffering in the world. And, and usually when we ask that question, what we're asking is about ourselves. Like, why is there suffering in the world? Why did my cat die? You know, um, so, sometimes it's shallow, you know. Like, why did I spill my, why did I spill my Dutch bros on myself this morning? Why? Like, why was I late for class? You know, why, you know, why, why, why? A lot of times we're asking why about suffering in our own, for our own lives. Sometimes it's much deeper than that. But regardless, a lot of people look at religion as something that you need when you are going through suffering. But actually, I think that this question that gets posited, Christianity not only offers the best answer to it, um, but also offers the most meaningful one. Uh, I'm not here tonight to tell you that uh, like everything about Christianity is airtight and everything that you believe about God through the Bible is going to be just like a complete, like everything's just sealed up perfectly and you're able to completely just take it at face value. Of course not. That's why we call it faith. Hello. This is about, this is about the Christian faith. This is about why we believe in Jesus. This is it. This is the moment. Just before this, Jesus was betrayed by one of his best friends. He stood, last week we read about the trial of Jesus where he stood before religious leaders who hated him because he claimed that he was God. 
He stood before political leaders who were forced to execute him because he claimed to be a revolutionary. And so now comes the moment where we observe his suffering. And so we ask, why is there suffering in the world? Really, what we have to ask is this. What is suffering really? What is the nature of suffering? Because in Scripture, what we read about is a God who suffers. And that is unique. That is unique about the Christian faith. There is no other faith that teaches that there is a God out there who not only created everything, but suffers with you. He suffers with you. And so tonight, we are going to do this. In, it's, it's sobering, but it's, this is really, really good stuff. Let's read this together, and we're going to contemplate this together. And I want to hopefully dismantle some of the typical assumptions that we have about what the crucifixion means and like what it was, all that kind of stuff. We're going to talk about the implications of it. But first, let's read the scripture together. So this is um, Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 15. This is after Jesus has spoken with Pontius Pilate, and it says this. Again, the first account of Jesus. Let's read this. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. And they divided their, his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. While he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, as we consider this moment, we want to uh, acknowledge the fact that you enter into our pain. And there is nobody else who can do that. It's only you. You are it. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so 
Would you make that real to us, Holy Spirit? Stir in our hearts tonight as we consider your sacrifice for us. In Jesus' name, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. And everyone who trusts in Jesus said, This is heavy. And the first question that comes to mind for me is this. Why did Jesus have to go through this? And why is it that Christians celebrate this guy? Because I don't know about you guys, but up until this point in the Gospel of Mark, I've been expecting Jesus to do, if, if I'm reading this for the first time, I'm expecting Jesus to do something awesome. He's been performing miracles. He's raised the dead. He's done all these miraculous things. And he said he's God. And it says in the beginning, this is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, which is a title for the king of the Roman Empire. He's supposed to be the most powerful person who has ever lived. And here what's happening is he's getting executed like a common, not even like a common criminal, like a, like a capital offending criminal. He's getting accused wrongfully and he's getting executed and he's doing nothing and he's getting stripped of his clothes and he's getting injured to the point where he's just bleeding out and he gets hung up naked. And by all accounts, Jesus looks like a complete and utter loser. He's a loser. And nobody reading this would look at this and go, yeah, Jesus was great. They go, what a loser. This, this is the God that you say, Mark, that you say, this is the son of God. This guy is a nobody. He's a pathetic peasant. He's a homeless, single, 33-year-old man who had nothing going for him except some cool magic tricks, and then he died. Big deal. And we can look at that at face value. And we could say the exact same thing. And many people do look at Jesus that way. And that's why many people look at Christians that way. That's why many people look at the church that way. It's a bunch of losers following a guy who looks like a loser. But is that true? See, a lot of times when we talk, when we talk about the gospel, I, I want you guys to have your Bibles open because I'm going to ask each of you guys to read a different portion of this as we go through this. It said that at the very beginning, this was the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The good news. And, and nothing about this section, I, I don't hear this and go, oh yeah, good news. This guy got crucified. Just so you know, it, if you're going step by step through this, what happened to him first? Well, first it says he was scourged. Okay, The Romans perfected the practice of torturing people. And so what they did to him is, and the Gospel of Luke clarifies this, that Pilate was trying to punish him badly enough to where the people would let him go because he didn't want to have a revolution on his hands. So what he did is he had his soldiers beat Jesus with a cat of nine tails, which was, uh, it had a wooden handle and several leather thongs that were bound up with pieces of uh, metal and bone and glass. And they hit him with it at least 40 times. And they, they shredded the skin off of his body. And so then as Jesus is standing there, uh, Pilate's like, is this good enough for you? And the people say, no, let's crucify him. Not only that, but we read this last week. He said, um, I, there's this guy, Barabbas. He is a murderer. He is guilty of murder. Uh, what should we do with this guy? And they, he said, they say, you should release us, Barabbas. And he's like, what about the king of the Jews? What do you want me to do with him? They say, crucify him. He's like, why? The reason he's so shocked about this is because of how shocking crucifixion was. What they would do is they would take somebody and they would either put him on, on just a post and they would nail, put a nail either through, and through the wrists and through their ankles. Or what they would do is they would put them on a T-shaped post and you would put a nail through the wrist. Uh, the wrist has a tremendous amount of nerve endings in it. Um, you wouldn't put it necessarily through the hand because that's not strong enough to hold up the body, but you would put the nail through the wrist and you would drive it into the wood. 
um, then they would have a longer nail that they would drive through the ankles that would go into the wood beneath him. There's a small piece of wood underneath the victim where he would be able to push up on to, in order to breathe. Um, the main way that people died from crucifixion was by asphyxiation. It wasn't the pain, uh, and neither was it the bleeding out, because you actually weren't bleeding that much from the nail wounds. You're just suffering extreme pain. And so what you'd do is you'd have to pull yourself up by the nails through your wrists and push up on the nail on your ankles so you could get a breath, and then back down you would go. It would take many, some people it would take over 24 hours to die on a cross, and Pilate was known for crucifying people. In this case, Jesus not only received that, but he also received a brutal scourging beforehand where his flesh was ripped from his bones. And he's, and so, so as we walk through this, though, I think sometimes we look at, we, we, you know, Christians talk about the, about the gospel, right? And they say, um, this is the basic uh, framework we look at, right? So, um, what happened to Jesus was, was bad, right? It was pretty bad. Um, we, we can agree on that, right? It was, it was bad. Um, and what he deserved was good, right? And so the way, main way that we understand the gospel is this. We say um, that he was innocent, right? We see, could, could somebody read the verse about Barabbas? Read verse 15 for me. Um, I'm just going to like pick on random people. Charles, could you, it, you got it? Go ahead, read verse 15. 15. Yeah. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. So what we see here is uh, on the good, so Jesus is innocent, right? And Barabbas is guilty. And so we say, this is what happens. Um, so whether, so Jesus becomes the guilty one, but we become innocent, right? And so we're like, yeah, that's, that's, that is, and that is absolutely true. So this, this is where Jesus is right here. So he, so we are guilty of sin. And of course it says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we say, yeah, we are the guilty ones. And when we think about our lives and we think about the th- the thoughts that we've thought, and we think about the things that we've done, and you were to me- if you were to measure yourself against you know, the law of God in the Old Testament, you'd go, yeah, I'm guilty of breaking the law. That's me. I'm Barabbas. I'm him. And I get set free, and Jesus takes the punishment. And so the common narrative that we tell people is this. You need to believe in Jesus. Why? So that you can be declared innocent, so that you can be justified before God, and that your sins will be paid for and atoned for, right? But... This And of course, in 1 John 4.10, it says in this, there's a very powerful statement in 1 John 4.10, because this moment that we just read about, as horrible as it is, inspired the writing of the rest of the New Testament and thousands thousands of years of worship and millions of people devoting their lives to this person. So this is one gospel framework that we use, and we use it all the time. We say it's it's all about guilt versus innocence. In fact, I have it up there. 1 John 4.10 says this, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. Somebody say propitiation, propitiation for our sins. Now that's a word, it's kind of an old-fashioned word, but it means a payment for a fulfillment of something for our sins. And so we say that. But a lot of people, they go, well, I'm not a bad person. I haven't, I haven't done anything. And, and then what happens is Christians will hammer them with this, no, you are bad. If you really think about it, you've done all these horrible things. You're like Barabbas. But then when we stick with that narrative, what we, you guys, what we miss is the fullness of the good news. 
If this is the good news of Jesus, why is it good? If it's just about me focusing on how guilty I am and how innocent he is, I mean, that's, that is one way to look at the gospel. But you guys, it is so much bigger than that. And when we look at this narrative, we actually see it from so many different angles because the good news is comprehensive. It is not just for the person who recognizes that they've done something guilty. It's not just for the person who has done prison time, you know. It's not just for the person who has, you know, oh, yeah, I was into hard drugs and I killed people. And, I, you know, it's not, it's not just for that person. If the gospel really is good news and it's for anyone, what else is it? Well, of course, guilt and innocence is great. I mean, if we go to the next slide here. So, yes, I'm gonna, we're going to talk about, this is just, just looking through it. There are 12 different, you can see at least, there's, there's more, I'm sure. But in my study, I found 12 different gospel frameworks that you can look at. And you can see that this is not just good news for the person who's really bad. This is good news for you. For you. It doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. Look at this, number one. So we have guilt for, that goes to innocence, verse 15. And then, and of course, this is backed up in, in Romans 8, 1, where Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And of course, if anything's preaching you, you can say amen. That is good news. That everything you have done, every evil thing you have done has been paid for, and there is no condemnation for you because Jesus received all the condemnation in verse 15. He took it all. And while this man, Barabbas, was set free, it, Jesus was the one who said, I will take that. But that's not it. That's not the only one. There's another really big thing at work here. Um, and it's shame and honor. Uh, can somebody grab verses 16 through 20? All right. Could you read verses 16 through 20 real quick? Mm-hmm. So the soldiers came together. Now, these are Roman soldiers. They care nothing for the Jewish people. They're quite anti-Semitic and racist. They're hateful. They're spiteful. They are battle-hardened. They're cruel. And what Jesus suffered here was humiliation and shame. And this is another powerful way to see the gospel because not only does Jesus take away, uh, because what he experienced was shame on a massive scale on the other end of which is honor. So what happened is this. The soldiers took him aside and it says that they, they, he, was, he had already been stripped so that they could beat him. After he was stripped, they gave him a purple cloak. Now purple was a symbol of royalty. And then as a joke, they took a, they took a, they took, um, a branch of a thorn bush and they weaved it together and they jammed it onto his head and they bowed down to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they started beating him with a stick There are some people who don't understand the depth of the suffering that Jesus went through because they haven't stopped to consider what happens when you take a group of soldiers and you put an innocent person in their midst and you say, when you take a group of soldiers and you take a, ki a kind of person they are already predisposed to hate and then you say, go get him. Guantanamo Bay happens, guys. When there's no rules, there's no mercy. It says that they mocked him, but the word there for mocked actually comes up in the Greek translation of the Septuagint in, in a very scary place in Judges 19.25. And one of the most brutal 
I'm sorry, but the most brutal rape scene in all the Bible, that same word comes up. I'm not, I'm not saying, you say, was, was Jesus sexually abused by the soldiers? I'm not saying it's outside the realm of possibility. He was mocked. He was made little. He was made small. And some of you, you walk through life carrying a huge burden of shame because of things that were, that were done to you, not because of things that, were, that you chose, but because of things that were done to you. And Jesus, the good news is that Jesus took that shame so that he could bestow honor on you. Look at this verse. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Philippians 2, 9-10. through that is good news. Jesus not only takes your guilt, he also takes your shame. The things that you're embarrassed of, the things that you don't want to talk about, the things that culture says you can't talk about, as much as we want to talk about, we want to like bring things to light and oh yeah, like uh, when we, we talk about things that get spread around on the internet and like we want to raise awareness for issues, at the end of the day, it doesn't, awareness doesn't erase shame. Canceling doesn't erase shame. Only Jesus can do that. Another one. Fear, which goes to love. Can somebody read verse 23? Charles, you got it? Yeah. And they, I think I got it. Yeah. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he mm -hmm. did not take it. Yeah. But he did not take it. Just that verse, yeah, 23. They offered him wine with six verb, but, they didn't, but he did not take it. Now, why would they offer him this? Well, um, there's scholars that note that Mark, Mark notes that wine mixed with myrrh was offered to Jesus on the cross. In the first century, the physician uh, Dioscorides, I'm going to try to say this right, Dioscorides Pedanius noted that myrrh had narcotic properties. In other words, as he's getting ready to be nailed on the cross, they were like, hey, you want some drugs, man? This is going to suck. You want some? And he and I'm sure, and Jesus has to be filled. And I, Mark keeps it very bare. He just gives us the facts. But you know that Jesus has to be terrified in his in his flesh, in his human mind. He's going. This is awful. And I should take it. I should take the thing that takes away my pain. I sh I am scared right now. But he chooses courage, and he says, "No, I won't take it. I'm going to be fully in my wits this whole time. I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to embrace this cross, and I'm going to take it." So he takes your fear and he exchanges it for love. And as it says in 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out for fear. Fear, for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. He takes your fear and he gives you love. Then we have... There's more, but guys, there's more and more and more. And the more you look at it, because somebody get verse 24. So let's see, I'm going to, maybe I should just like call out people so that way we get, <laughs> Cody, could you get verse 24? Cindy, could you get verse 25? Jamie, could you get verse 26? Charles, um, I'm going to have you grab 27 through 32. Can you get um, 29 through 30? Can you get 34? All right. So, Cody, could you read that verse there? And they crucified him, and they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man would take. Yeah. 
So they crucified him. And this is the other thing. Jesus had nothing. He's on the cross, and his, the only thing he has are the clothes on his back, and they take those, and they gamble them away. In other words, Jesus takes your emptiness, and he exchanges it for fullness. As it says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Who's got verse 25? More good news. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. He was on the cross from the third hour, it says, until the ninth hour, which means he was up there for six agonizing hours, enduring unbelievable pain. But the good news is also that Jesus takes your pain and he offers you healing. Right? First Peter 2, 4, 224 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And I'm not here to, to just be like, and now we're going to have a healing service. Hallelujah. And we're going to lay hands on people. I'm, I'm not saying that, but I am saying that God's sacrifice here makes that whole thing possible. Next, um, in verse 26, Jamie. The inscription of the charges was the king of the Jews. This was a symbol of Roman oppression. They wanted to make sure that he knew that he was, that people knew that this is a joke. This guy's not actually, like, you don't put that on somebody's, this is an execution instrument. And they put the sign, this is the king of the Jews. Look at him. He's hanging up here naked. This is a symbol of oppression. The people of Israel have been oppressed by the Romans. They've been colonized by the Romans. Their entire way of life had been destroyed by the Romans. And now Jesus was taking that oppression so that you could have freedom. I gotta like, I'm, I'm like running out of room here. Just a couple more. Uh, so it says this, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Next one. Who's got, um, yeah, go for it. So here he takes loneliness because it, it, Mark, now obviously there were other, there were exceptions. We know this from the other gospel accounts, but Mark portrays Jesus as being completely alone on the cross. And even the two people next to him crucified, being crucified with him or reviling him, the leaders finally have their vengeance. They're like, sucker, you thought you were going to destroy our way of life, but guess what? Now the joke's on you. If you're the king of Israel, come down from the cross, you loser. You lost Jesus. And guess what? You're alone. And nobody cares. And nobody did. The way, that, the way that Mark portrays it, nobody did. He was completely alone. And some of you have struggled with loneliness your entire life. And Jesus comes to take your loneliness and give you fellowship. It says in Scripture right here, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship, the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God came so He could be friends with you. God gives you friendship through, the good news, through this. What else does He give us? Who's got 29 through 30? 
derided him. Right. So at this point, these people are derided him, are deriding him, and they're saying, "You can't save yourself." You're, and what they're doing is they're driving home for him despair. But he actually, the thing is, he actually was the king of Israel. They didn't actually know this, but Jesus comes to absorb your despair where you shouldn't be, where you should be hopeless. Jesus gives you hope. They thought it was this is it, this is over, this is the end of Jesus. Furthermore, and then it's in verse, uh, in verse thirty-four is when Jesus says, "Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani?" My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the most heartbreaking words. Right? So Hebrews 6, 19-20 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus gives us hope for eternal life. So if you're despairing, Jesus gives you hope. Then also on top of that, in verse 30, 34, Jesus cries out. He says, Elo, Eloi, lema sabachthani. That's an, that is Aramaic. And basically he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a quote from Psalm 22.1. Now, why did he cry, this, cry out like this? Well, first of all, because he is feeling the agony of God's wrath. And as he's feeling the agony of God's wrath, he's feeling separation from God. You have to understand, Jesus never experienced sin, so he never experienced any kind of separation from his Father. This is the first time that he's ever experienced it. And this was the truly soul-crushing nature of the cross. And that, but that's why it says this in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, 18-19. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So through Christ, God was reconciling us to himself that is, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trans- trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. So God's wrath is absorbed, and we get peace. And that's why Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. And then later, and then, of course, in verse 38, um, it says um, that, that they gave Jesus um, some wine. Uh, and, the temp- and then it says the curtain of the temple is torn in two. There's been some speculation about the wine, too. Uh, about the sponge dipped into wine. Uh, I've heard some say that it was actually used um, as uh, basically toilet paper for a latrine. Um, and they, you know, jammed that into Jesus' mouth just to make sure that the last taste on Jesus' lips and the last smell in his nose was the filth of humanity. But finally, he lead, he, it says the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. That means that the gospel is it takes you from spiritual death to spiritual life. That means that the, the way to, to eternal life was actually, there was this curtain in the temple that divided the holy place from the most holy place. It's a lot of details, but basically what it indicates is that the connection between God and man was restored. Now there is no longer death that is separating us from God. Now God and us can dwell together and we can have life. Jesus said, I came that we may have life and life more abundantly. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James 1.12. And, uh, and then just a couple more quickly. Weakness to power in verses 37 through 38. I love this because this is where the um, Jesus uttered a loud cry. He breathed his last. And then uh, we see there that in his weakness, as he's crying out and breathing his last, 
we actually are receiving Christ's power. Some of you have gone through life feeling weak. But for 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. There's more. because, And then, of course, there's sin and righteousness. And we tend to stay stuck on this one. But the fact is, the centurion, the officer who was watching the whole thing, he saw Jesus and he said, surely he was convicted. And he saw the way that Jesus died. And he said, surely this man was the Son of God. And he realized that Jesus was a righteous man. There's other gospel translators who said that it was, that he says, surely this was a righteous man. He saw the righteousness of Christ and that we were unrighteous and he was the one who should have received that, the blessing of righteousness, but instead he got the curse of sin. And that's why it says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So why did Jesus do this? Why would Jesus go through all of this? And why does it matter? Why does it matter that this person died 2,000 years ago? Why does it matter that Jesus died on a cross? Why does it matter that all of these... Because you have to see, look at this. All of these aspects between the good and the bad. This right here, this is the cross. That, and the difference between the good and the bad, all the bad that Jesus received is in order to exchange with you all the bad in your life to exchange it for good. And Jesus is the only one who can thread this needle. He's the only one who can do it. There is no philosopher. There is no teacher. There is no other moral leader. There is no other person who could ever do this. A million people could die a million deaths and they would never accomplish what Jesus did. He did it all. Why did he do it? He, why did he, because Jesus himself, now that Jesus has died in your place, you get to receive these. That's why he is your peace. He is your freedom. He is your fullness. He is your hope. He is your love. He is your innocence and your blamelessness. He is your honor. He is your healing. He is your friendship and your fellowship. He is the King of Kings. And Mark was right when he says this is the good news of the Son of God, because as big as a deal as Caesar is, guess what? Caesar's dead, but Jesus isn't. And that man who died on a cross 2,000 years ago is still making waves today because he's legit. That's it. The good news is this. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says this. This is one of my favorite explanations and I think one of the clearest explanations of why Jesus did this. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. You are the joy that was set before Jesus. You are the joy that was set before Jesus. You are the reason that Jesus was lonely and in pain and ashamed, and guilty, and fearful, and empty, and oppressed, and despairing, and enduring wrath. He did all that for you. And that's the message of Christianity. Why is that good news? Because there's nothing better than that. This is the facts, guys. He did it because through this one action, he accomplished what no one person ever could. That's why the good news is good. Because when he said to the high priest, I am the Son of God, he was absolutely declaring the truth. And then this ends on a curious note. It says, among those who were watching were a couple of women. 
all the 12, all the dudes have ditched at this point. They're, you never hear from him again. <laughs> uh, sorry, but Peter's, Peter's the last one, and he gets a bad mention. You never hear from them again. But these women, these women who had, been, who had ministered, listen to this, they ministered to Jesus. That means they, he wasn't ministering just to them. They were ministering to him. And they served him, and they loved him, and they followed him, and they cared for him. And they were the ones. It's a very curious note that Mark puts in here. Why does he mention the women? especially in a culture where women's, where women's testimony couldn't even be accepted in court. Why is it women? We'll have to find out about that next week. But these women watched him. And next week we're going to find out what happens in the aftermath of this. But the good news is that this stuff is paid for. It's done. And some of you guys just need to hear this. It's done. It's over. Okay? It's done. I did it. Jesus says, I did it on the cross. It's over. Your sin is done. The darkness is over. The depression is over. It's done. It's been paid for. And now it's time to release it. So, tonight, let's discuss a couple of questions. Why is the good news good for you? What stands out to you about how Jesus died? How can we live differently when we think about the crucifixion? And then the practical stuff. How can we pray for or help one another this week? Can we pray, though? Is that that okay? Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from the Regenerate Podcast. And if you enjoyed our content, please feel free to subscribe. If you have any questions or would like to send us feedback, send us an email at regeneratelcsc at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Regenerate, changing the world for Jesus, one person at a time.